Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. Well, welcome back to another episode with stories guaranteed to give you the chills. Let's get right into it. As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Some friends and I explored an abandoned school. I was the only one to leave alive. Written by Lofo. The most sobering moment of my life happened as I hid underneath a moldy and waterlogged desk. Underneath that desk I realized that, in all probability, this was it. I would never be able to go home again. I realized this as I hid from the snarling and heavy breathing thing that I could hear just beyond the thin metal backing of the desk. The thing that I was sure would be the death of me. Sam, Nathan, and Ellie climbed into the truck, a snow-white 2016 used Chevy Colorado. My pride and joy since I had driven it off the lot only two years ago. Having already driven two hours, they weren't looking forward to another hour and a half, staring out of the window into the dull countryside of rural Tennessee. Once the last seatbelt had clicked, I slid the gear shifter in reverse and backed out of the empty lot of a Barnes & Noble bookstore. Within minutes of reaching the highway, Nathan had put in his earbuds. He was content with staring out of the window and listening to the latest episode of whatever his latest podcast fixation was. A look in the back seat revealed Sam scrolling through Instagram and Ellie fast asleep on his shoulder. A puddle of drool cast a shadow of inevitability on his shoulder. He didn't seem to pay any attention to it. The silence was fine with me. I liked it and evidently so did they. I had only known Sam and Nathan for just north of four months and Ellie only seven more than that. Yet still I had no hesitation bringing them along for something that I usually did on my own or with one other person at the most. They all came off as capable enough to run away if we heard sirens outside, and mentally strong enough to not give up any names if they weren't fast enough. I had heard of this place in passing from some guy online. The post read, School abandoned in the late 70s early 80s, filled with all kinds of cool stuff. The post contained a myriad of photos of the hallways, dark and dusty, filled with what seemed like moving boxes, stuffed to the brim with books whose pages were no doubt laced with asbestos by now. The rest of the photos were things that he had pulled from said boxes. A few interesting things, old magazines, books, and a cassette tape labeled Sex You Up, and promising enough. There had been times that a place like this looked like this, Old, filled with all kinds of relics from decades and generations that are long in the dirt. The single post was all that it took. One look at the geotag in the photo and I knew where it was. 
I had taken to looking in the inspect menu as most people don't like to give out addresses to these places. They adopted this faux anonymity for fear of graffiti artists covering the once spotless walls with a myriad of genitalia, profanity, and bad attempts at tagging their street names. All they did was make it take 20 more seconds for those who knew what to look for. The trip was on the longer end of the spectrum. The GPS had our drive time at 3 hours from my front door. After a quick game of road trip ABCs, everybody was off into their own little world. As the exit signs became fewer and fewer, and the six-lane highway slowly turned into a one-way dirt road, I felt a weird sense of calm. All at once, my anxieties about this trip had faded. I didn't care if we couldn't get in. I didn't care if we would be the only ones there or not. I pulled into a small two-pump gas station only 30 minutes from the decrepit ruins that could barely be called a school anymore. Out of instinct, I pulled out my wallet from my back pocket and flipped my debit card into my left hand. I paused for a moment as I realized that I would need to go inside to pay. Staring at the pump and the decades-old buildup of dirt and muck between the price sticker and the scratch-covered plate glass... Walking inside to pay, I stopped by a handwritten sign taped on the front door. Equally as dirty as the pump, the sign read, Cash only, no card. I stepped inside and was immediately thrown into the past. The walls were plastered with beer and cigarette ads, ranging from the 60s to the late 90s. The large room reeked of stale cigarette smoke and antifreeze leaking from the no-doubt ancient AC unit. Stepping up to the counter, I felt out of place, in opposition to these sweat-stained t-shirts, ragged jeans, and yellow trucker caps. I wore stainless Levi khaki pants, canvas Nikes, and a thin green flannel. The clerk looked me up and down for a moment. What do you need? The aged man behind the counter had asked. When he spoke, I was able to count the five yellowing teeth that he still had left. I need. I pulled out my wallet, two crumpled singles at 20 and a receipt for dinner the night before. Do you take debit? No card, he said pointing to the sign on the door. What are y'all here for? He motioned between me and the others through the window next to him. Ain't much to do here but work. He glanced back outside. And y'all don't strike me as the type. Uh, we're photographers. There's an abandoned school nearby that we heard about. Seemed like it was worth the drive. Son, I'm gonna give you some of the best advice that you've ever heard. His voice somehow began to even get heavier as he spoke. Some doors are locked shut for a reason. And sometimes that's for the best. He stared at me with such intensity that it felt like he was staring at a hole right through me. When I looked like tears were about to well up, I began to look for any way out that I could. Yeah, 20 on pump too. I slid the bill across the counter. He took it without breaking eye contact. You stay away from there, you hear me? I didn't answer. You best pile your friends back into that spacecraft of a pickup you're driving. Turn your happy butts around. Yes, sir. I said, turning my heel and making my way out of the door. 
Ellie was perched against the truck bed, eyes trained on sand next to her. After about two minutes, the pump shut off and I closed the tank and reholstered the nozzle into the pump. And in a moment, we were off again. Nathan had one earphone out. Nathan's phone was sitting in the empty cup holder between us. The screen was still on. Enigmatic, the tragic mystery of Flight 1015. A story about people going missing. That didn't seem like the best thing to be listening to right now, but who was I to judge? As the road kept going in a straight line, I began to zone out. Picturing all the things that we could find inside, the photos that we could take. In what felt like five seconds, the GPS dinged at me. You've arrived at your destination. When I became fully aware again, I found myself parked in front of the school. The faded sign read, Alderson Academy, the word of God guides us. The lot was barren pulling in. My tires warbled and crunched over the tall crabgrass and weeds growing between the cracks and the concrete lot that looked like it hadn't been attended to since before I was born. Three cars sat dormant at one end of the lot. Lying neatly in a row, all of their windows had been either rolled down or smashed. Their insides had been ransacked as if somebody had wanted to get rid of any resemblance to the interior of a mid-90s Ford Taurus. The dashes were smashed, glove compartments were gone entirely, and the steering wheels looked like they had been on the losing end of a fight with a sledgehammer. Each interior emitted the slightest hint of bleach from no particular source, as if the entire inside had been drenched at one point or another. Putting on our respirators, I found myself itching for a reason not to go inside. A burning sensation began to form at the pit of my stomach. All of a sudden, I was the one with cold feet. I had practically begged the other three to come with me. I couldn't just turn around. I found myself making a mental list of all the things that could go wrong. When I ran out of any plausible ones after the first few seconds, I fastened my respirator and made my way to the front door. Sam, Nathan, and Ellie not far behind. You do this kind of thing a lot. I heard Nathan ask from behind me. When I turned around to answer him, I saw that the question was directed towards Sam. I didn't hear his answer, something about his brother in Peru. My mind was more occupied with what the man at the gas station had said to me before I left. Some doors are locked for a reason. Those words echoed back and forth as I wrapped my fingers around the master brand padlock that held the front door shut. Next to the door stood a stone cherub. Slightly green with moss, it held a small basket above its head. Around the back, we stumbled on a window that had been left open. Not smashed, open. Behind the window lay a thick sludge of darkness, so thick that my flashlight was unable to pierce beyond a few feet past the window frame. Without hesitation, Ellie jumped through and landed on what sounded like a thin layer of gravel on a linoleum floor. Her personally customized worn Air Force Ones shifted back and forth, slowly eroding the floor with each step. This was layered with the oohs and ahs from somebody who had never set foot into an abandoned building. Next was Sam and Nathan after him. As I watched them go inside, I felt the same burning sensation in my chest that I had only ever experienced at the gas station. 
felt like somebody was staring right through me. I stuck my head inside of the window and my eyes quickly adjusted to the blinding darkness. Everyone seemed off in their little world, each of them distracted by a different element in the room. Pulling my head back out, I was instantly blinded by the searing light. As I rubbed my eyes, I scanned the tree line, looking for any reason to pile back in the car and leave. Nothing. I saw a little bit of movement not far into the thicket, but managed to convince myself that it was just a squirrel. When my feet landed on what I had correctly assumed was a dirt-covered linoleum floor, I found myself making direct eye contact with a dusty painting of a giraffe picking leaves delicately from a treetop. As I scanned the rest of the room, I noticed everyone filing out of the collapsing doorway and into the main hallway that, from what I could guess from the pictures, stretched the entire length of the building. As I shuffled behind them, all was still taken aback by the enormity of the place. As we began to walk deeper into the maze-like design, beams of light darted from corner to corner, illuminating every crack and crevice the building had to offer. It wasn't long before we began digging through boxes, our form of archaeology. Sam, come look at this, Nathan said as he had emerged from a doorway. All at once, three flashlights blinded him. He was holding something but kept it behind the door out of view. When the light hit his eyes, he shot both hands in front of his face, one to take off his glasses and the other to shield his eyes. As he did, whatever he held slammed to the floor with a loud crash. Whatever glass that he was holding was now in a thousand different pieces scattered around his feet. Dang it. He bent down and fished out a small photo from what had been a picture frame and shined a light on it. The picture was a spitting image of Sam, with everything from the dirt mustache that one could almost call a real piece of facial hair, to the shoulder-length jet-black hair. Sam laughed and took the photo and held it up to his face. I lifted my camera and took a picture. Sam folded the photo and shoved it into his back pocket. It's mine now, he laughed. I began to walk around more, snapping photos of almost everything in sight. In what felt like seconds, I realized that I had secluded myself away from everybody else. With each click of the shutter button, the flash shot up and illuminated whatever was in front of it before snapping right back down. I took one last photo before turning around to rejoin the group. When I saw a glint of white riding above the doorway that I could barely make out in the darkness. The path to salvation begins with a single step. I figured it looked nice with the light leaking through an open door with light spilling through and onto the filthy linoleum floor. I raised my camera and I snapped a photo. When the flash briefly clicked on, it revealed a long red gash to the left side of a door that led into a bathroom that I'd only just noticed. I clicked the button on the bottom of my light and it sprung to life for all of six seconds before sputtering out. I tried everything to turn it back on aside from replacing the batteries with new ones that I didn't have. In all honesty, I shouldn't have left here no worse off than when I had entered, but I didn't. Instead, I resolved to use my camera as a makeshift flashlight, using every flash to map out where I was. 
The first flash went off and I was all of three inches from smacking my nose into a wall. The second flash went off and I was able to get my bearings and I fell my way to the edge of the bathroom wall. When my fingers wrapped around the cold edge of the painted cement blocks, I took another photo and watched as the gash got wider, with small spatters branching out from the top and bottom, something akin to a monochrome Pollock painting. As my camera flash went off again, it illuminated something that I still have trouble describing. It was a body. While it resembled more of a puddle than a human, blood, chunks of flesh, a covered muscle were strewn about on the floor, creating a standing puddle of it all. Bugs pulsed in and around where I assumed the face was at one point or another. It didn't feel real. I lost my balance as I stared into the darkness. Having seen the flash, my mind was able to vaguely remember the outline of what was now lying three feet away in complete and total darkness. Unnatural darkness. My ears began to ring and my legs gave out. My eyes dilated into tunnel vision as I landed heavily on my wrists and smacked my head against the wall behind me. I must have been screaming because in no time, Sam, Ellie, and Nathan were all standing over me. When they first had arrived, I could only make out vague muffled sounds as they beamed their flashlights into my eyes. As they stood over me, my hearing dialed back into reality and I became more aware of the aching coming from the back of my head and the burning sensation in my throat. I had no doubt been screaming. What's wrong? Ellie shouted at me. Before I had a chance to answer for myself, Nathan did it for me, letting out a yelp that was cut short by a string of vomit. Sam stood numb, shining his flashlight on the remains. Ellie noticed it next, and she let out a shrill and ear-piercing scream. You don't react the same way you think you would in a situation like this. I always found myself watching horror movies telling the characters to stop standing there and to just run. But at that moment, I finally understood what true fear was. It was paralyzing. It held all of us in place like statues. As we all stood there, sobering up from what we had just witnessed, an even worse thought crossed my mind. What did this to him? And even worse, is it still here? All of these thoughts took hold of everything inside of me, and the only way that I could convey them to the group was four words. We need to leave. I stood to my feet, using Ellie's wrist and arm as support to gain my footing. Jesus Christ. Nathan said as he wiped his mouth. What happened to him? His question came off as an equally genuine and morbid curiosity. The way that his voice cracked, it sounded like it almost hurt him to squeak out the question. Sam was still frozen, his light still shining on the body. He watched the insects pulse and scatter around every square inch of exposed nerve. Judging by the oxidation of the blood, whoever this once was had been here for at least a few days, no more than two weeks at most. Crap. Ellie let out and we all glanced over to see her holding her phone above her head. The white background of the emergency dial screen illuminated the brickwork. No signal. No, you've got to be doing something wrong. Sam said, finally snapping out of whatever trance he had been in before it, beginning to make his way toward her. 
You can dial 911 no matter what. Company's tower you're connecting off of. Well, then there's no tower, Sam. Her voice began to break too. None of us knew how to deal with this sort of thing. I mean, who do you call? Where do you tell them that you are when there's nothing else for miles? When Sam finally tried the phone for himself, he was met with the same busy and no service signal that Elliot heard. In an instant, they had stopped arguing. From down the hall, the unmistakable sound of boots on the dirty linoleum floor inched toward us at a slow and steady pace. We didn't know what to do. We froze in place for what felt like centuries as the footsteps inched closer with every step. Whoever had been walking must have heard us notice them because they let out a shrill and almost inhuman shriek that echoed through the hallways. It was met with what sounded like a half dozen more from outside of the building. Just down the hallway behind us was the cracked open door of what I can assume used to be a classroom of some kind. Nathan was the first to spot it, opting to leave us and slink his way over without so much as a tap on the shoulder. I grabbed Sam and Ellie and soon we were right behind him. The classroom was laid out as stereotypically as one could imagine a classroom from the mid-70s. One large wooden and water-damaged desk at the front of the room was assigned specifically for the teacher, followed by four columns of seven all-in-one desks. Along the left side of the room were three double-door coat closets. Sam and Ellie took one of those while Nathan and I sought refuge behind the desk at the front of the room. As Ellie and Sam shut the door behind them, they crawled inside the closet, and they let the door drop, with a loud clatter against the body of the wardrobe. I could hear them mentally cussing at the same time that I was. The footsteps got closer. None of us could see, but judging from where they had stopped, I was guessing that the person was standing in the doorway. I held my breath as I did Nathan next to me. I held it so long that all I could hear was my heartbeat growing faster and faster until I was sure that it was about to explode. My hands were glued to the floor, every muscle in my body stiff. I did my best to minimize anything that could make any noise whatsoever. A lump formed in my throat as I continued to hold my breath past the point of safety. I wasn't able to exhale until I heard Ellie's loud piercing scream come from the closet. I peeked my head over the desk, the large, hulking figure that had made its way into the room. Its body was almost humanoid, a deer standing on its hind legs, its arms were impossibly long and sloped off of its emaciated body. The tips of what I can only describe as claw-bearing fingers were dripped with red. Following the trail up and across its face led me to the fresh body of Sam. His face had been smashed against the coat hook in the inside of the closet. The end stuck through his eye socket, while the rest of it clung to a small strand of an optical nerve that hung just below of his chin. Faster than my eyes or brains could comprehend, the thing at its fist closed around Ellie's throat before slowly squeezing closed. The blood had rushed to her face, turning it beet red. Her eyes went bloodshot while refusing to blink at the monstrosity before her, almost trying to deny what was happening, to rationalize. This only lasted a roughly a second before the thing made a complete fist with a loud crack around Ellie's neck. Her scream ceased and her head dropped like a floppy children's toy. 
The thing relished at the moment, letting out three short and shrill screams at the top of its lungs. Dripping red and saliva down at the tattered and bloody clothes that it wore. By their condition, I assumed that it had stolen them from another person who had probably come to explore. When it grabbed and ripped off Sam's hanging eye and raised it to its lips, I slowly and carefully lowered myself back down to the ground below the desk. Nathan had plugged his ears with his hands and sat in the fetal position. I didn't blame him. Given my history of dealing with traumatic events, I'm still surprised that I wasn't doing the same thing. The sounds it made were awful. A cacophony of slurping, snapping, and ripping sounds drifted from the wardrobe. I went back to being paralyzed by fear. As it continued eating, I realized that this would probably be it. My life would come to a close with no loud bang. I would die as unremarkably as I lived. At this moment, I realized just how much I had taken my life for granted. All I wanted to do was break down and cry at the feet of God, apologize for every transgression that I had ever made against anyone or anything, to beg for my life. And I began to quietly cry. A tear rolled down my cheek and I didn't want this to be the end. As the teardrop hit the floor, the feast had stopped. My heart sank. I heard heavy panting from just beyond the desk, followed by one long and wet shriek. I could hear the concoction of blood and saliva being ejected from the creature's throat as it tried to communicate with whatever or whoever it was outside. Nathan panicked. He tried to run and he almost made it past the abomination, but it shot its lanky arms out and grabbed Nathan by the ankle, dropping the big guy painfully to the floor knocking the wind out of him almost immediately. He tried to scream, but the lack of air in his lungs wouldn't let him. I did something that I still had trouble trying to justify. I ran. The way that I saw it, Nathan was dead. He was a sacrifice. The moment the thing had wrapped its bloody claws around his ankle, he was already reduced to a headstone that marked a closed casket funeral. I pivoted around the desk, knocking over every desk as I passed it to give myself as much lead room as possible. I heard Nathan's last attempt at a hoarse scream get cut off with a loud crunch. It let out one more high-pitched yell before I heard it begin to chase me. No, run after me. I pivoted around the doorway and ran down the hallway, one foot in front of the other. I dipped and dodged every stack of boxes and bookcase in the hallway while behind me. I heard it barrel into every single object and keep going unfazed. At one point, after I had made it to the west wing where we had entered, I turned around to see it galloping on all fours after me. It was closer than I had thought, only about five feet behind my back foot. I kept running. My legs burned as if my veins pumped battery acid. I turned one last corner and saw the entrance to the room that contained the open window. I powered through and slid on the floor, catching myself by gripping the door frame and sliding my feet in. As I took my first step inside, the thing was going too fast to stop on a dime. I didn't waste the opportunity. I barreled straight through the window without trying to open it. I covered my face in the glass sliced through almost every piece of exposed skin. I crash landed against the crabgrass lawn and flipped to my back. The deer peered out at me from the blinding darkness. 
The wax jacket that it was wearing flopped open to reveal exposed rib and muscle. It did not attempt to reach me, simply slinking away to finish its meal. I began to laugh hysterically. I had no rhyme or reason. It was just the only response that I could muster up to keep myself from either passing out or shutting down completely. I laid my head back in reverence only to see a small child standing over me. He wore a small mask made from the skull of what looked like to be a dog. He raised his finger to where I approximated his mouth to be in a shush gesture. I felt something sturdy crack against the side of my head, and I slipped into a peaceful sea of pitch black. When I came to, my head was throbbing and my hair felt wet and heavy. It was dark out by now. I have no idea how long I had been unconscious. All I knew was that it looked like the sun had set hours beforehand. In front of me were eight figures around a bonfire. All were dressed in robes and wearing animal skull masks that obscured their faces. I tried to move but came to the realization that I couldn't move. Two large ropes had been tied around my chest and my legs too and kept my back flat against a tall oak tree. One of the figures approached me, a woman. Her blonde hair protruded the sides of her mask and draped down her shoulders. She pushed her face only two inches from the tip of my nose and I let out the only response that I could think of. What is this? Who are you people? I'll give you anything, just let me go. The woman removed her mask. Her face had been disfigured at one point or another. Large scars left tracks all over her face. Her lips had been cut open on multiple occasions. Shh, she said, revealing a set of deep red teeth. She shushed me as if she were a mother trying to calm down an unruly child. It's not about money, it's about you. She said as she pointed one finger at my chest, still talking in a calm voice. A sweet voice that almost made me forget where I was. She extended her left hand behind her with her palm open, still pointing one finger at me and never once breaking eye contact. One of the other figures, a man this time, handed her a very large and very old hunting knife. She traced it up and around my torso, eventually landing on my stomach. She balanced the knife tip just above my belt buckle. This is going to sting, but it will all be over soon, she said, still talking in that nurturing voice before pushing the knife into my stomach. I was met with the worst pain that I had ever felt in my life. I screamed and she shushed me again. She began to drag and twist the knife. When I wouldn't stop screaming, she covered my mouth. After what felt like five lifetimes, she pulled out the knife. It's all over, go to sleep, were the last words I heard before I lost consciousness again. When I came to, the sun had risen. The bonfire was nothing but smoldering embers and burnt logs. Around it lay the bodies of all seven figures still wearing their robes. The woman lay at my feet, still. All at once, I was reminded of the surgery that I had been given the night before. My knees gave out and I slid down the tree into a squat that did nothing but add to the pain. I let out another scream. Over the next several minutes, I began to break away from the rope by sliding up and down the rough tree bark. 
After I was free, the next several days come in flashes. I remember running to my truck only to find it destroyed and bleached like the others. The next thing I remember is running into the road, covered in red and screaming like a madman. At some point, a truck must have stopped for me and let me in because the next thing I remember, I was trying to mumble the story out to the driver as he drove me to the nearest hospital. When he helped me limp through the sliding doors, I collapsed from blood loss. According to Dr. Foster, I died for two minutes as they tried to fill me with as much blood and essential fluids as I had lost. Over the coming days, I recovered in the hospital, keeping a close eye on who entered my room. Police came by as soon as I was lucid again. Wiltshire County Sheriff's Department, their badges red. They asked me as many questions as they could before disappearing again. After five days in the intensive care unit, I was finally transferred to a shared room and was finally able to sleep through an entire night. I don't like it here. Last night, a nurse came and woke me up in the middle of the night. It's all over, just go to sleep. She sat, smiling at me, revealing a set of deep, red teeth before everything went black. I investigated the abandoned house next door. Something strange has been there. Written by Doomed Geek. When the people next door moved out, I was over the moon. It meant no more having to listen to the dog they kept tied up in the backyard yapping morning, noon, and night. It was a horrible animal. Looked closer to a rodent than a hound. It meant no more being woken up at 2am by the sound of tires screeching to a halt. I would lie in the dark staring up towards the ceiling, my heart pounding in my chest waiting for what came next. The slurred and raised voices, the doors being slammed shut and then the music beginning. It went on some nights until dawn, and I didn't get any sleep. The people next door moving out also meant no more things would be thrown into my backyard by them. No more crushed beer cans or empty popcorn boxes. I swear they thought my backyard was a refuse dump. I complained, of course. I phoned and wrote to the authorities. I was told at first to keep a diary of the disturbances, which I did, and when I sent copies of that, I was told that somebody would come visit. But they never did. I called the cops as well, but they didn't come either. Through all of this, I never confronted the people next door directly, though I wanted to so badly. I was convinced if I had that they would become violent and I was not somebody who could defend themselves in a fight. And so I suffered, for five years and all, until that day when I was taking out my trash, like a civilized person does, with it in a bag tied at the top that I would put in my bin. I was stood on my front porch when I saw the trunk of their car open and there were suitcases and bags on the ground. And then the man appeared. He was staggering under the weight of a large cardboard box, which he loaded into the trunk before slamming the lid closed. Or he tried anyway. But the box was too big to fit in and the lid wouldn't shut. <laughs> 
A reasonable person would have taken the box out and tried a different arrangement, but not him. He slammed the lid down again and again, cussing each time that he failed. And then he just seemed to give up and he left the trunk hanging open while he turned his attention to throwing the suitcases and bags into the back seat of the car. There was no sign of his partner and the part of me which enjoyed late night true crime shows on TV as a guilty pleasure began to wonder if he had done away with her. If one of their drunken arguments had gone too far and she was now buried out in the backyard. But no, she appeared. A handbag dangling off each arm and carrying the yapping monster. It had on a little red neckerchief. Ignoring the man who was now trying to force more bags into the back seat, even though they were clearly full, she got in the passenger seat and sat there while the dog squirmed and yapped. Finally, he managed to force the back doors of the car closed and climb behind the wheel. The engine started on the third attempt and they rattled away. My house and theirs were the only two around and were situated at the end of a mile-long narrow road. Everything else for a good distance was woodland. After they had pulled away and disappeared out of sight, I went to stand in the middle of the road and I listened. And do you know what I heard? Nothing. Except the chatter of the birds in the trees and a few branches being rustled by the breeze. A couple of tears ran down my face. I wiped them away and went back inside my house. It was such a good feeling. Oh, weight had been lifted. I hoped. Had they really been them moving out or were they just going on vacation and in a week or two they would be back and my waking nightmare would start over? I was mightily relieved then when a couple of days later, a truck pulled up in front of the house and a for sale sign was erected next to the porch. I said, yes, and I punched the air. That got me a funny look from the man who had put the sign up, but he said nothing and packed his tools up and drove away. I went over to have a closer look at the sign. I couldn't imagine what the point of it was. This was a dead-end road, so there were no passing traffic. No one walked along here either. Maybe it was something the realtors did automatically for all the properties that they handled, I figured, and then I punched the air again. The first sale sign didn't matter. What did matter was that I was finally free of my horrible neighbors and their dog, the yapping rodent beast. I went back into my house. I never drank alcohol, but if there had been a beer in the fridge, I would have cracked it open. As it was, I made myself a cup of peppermint tea and took a chair out into the backyard, where I drank my tea and listened to the sounds of the woods uninterrupted by anything or anyone. It was early evening by the time that I went back inside. I liked everything to be just so in my house. The pans in the kitchen were hung in order of size. The knives, forks, and spoons were all in their separate drawers, and I rinsed out the bin in the kitchen at least once a day with hot water. It was the same in all of the other rooms in the house, and there was one cozy clean room in particular that I wanted to be in in that moment in time. I went upstairs to my bedroom. I was shattered and fell asleep the moment that my head hit the pillows. I slept straight through and woke feeling refreshed. 
The sunlight streaming in through the window had never looked so good. I had inherited the house from my parents when they had passed, and I thought about them as I started giving it a spring clean. I spent all day happily dusting and vacuuming and polishing, and that night, I slept well again. The only thing that started to intrude on my positive mood over the days that followed was worrying about who might buy the house next door and move in. What if they were even worse than their predecessors? It was possible, but I told myself that it was going to be okay. As soon as somebody new moved in, I would go over and introduce myself with a smile and a handshake. It would be a good start. A neighborly start. It turned out, though, that I was worrying about the wrong thing. About two months after the people next door moved out, a truck pulled up outside and the man that I recognized from last time took the for sale sign down. What did that mean, I wondered. If the house had been bought, surely a sold notice would have been pasted over the sign in place. Realtors are never shy to sing their own praises, even if I was the only person who could see that they had closed another deal. Also, no one had been to view the property, as far as I knew. After a period of feeling pretty settled, my nerves started to jangle. I didn't know what was going on. I found the number of the realtors online and I called them up. Um, hi, I said. I'm interested in the property on Creech Lane. I would like to arrange a viewing. This was a lie, of course, a way to get them to open up to me. And it worked. The men who had answered paused for a second before replying. Yes, that property was on our books, he said. And then there was another pause. My heart started to beat a little bit quicker. Come on, don't leave me hanging, I thought. The owner of the property put it up for sale after his tenants moved out without giving notice. He finally continued. But sadly, he passed away and the house now cannot be sold until probate is complete. I believe there may be complications around this. Family disputes, though, I really can't say anymore. However, it does mean that the lawyer acting for the estate has asked us to take the property off the market, which is a shame, but we have a number of similar properties available. If I can just begin by taking your name. I ended the call before I could get dragged into a sales pitch, and then went to get a glass of water from the kitchen. My hands were shaking as I drank it. What I had learned had come as a shock. My nightmare neighbors had not owned the house next door, it seemed, and the person who had was dead, leaving the legal vultures to move in. Which left me wondering, how long would the house next door remain unsold and empty? The thought of living next door to a property that was as good as abandoned had bothered me. I put a jacket on and stepped out into my front porch, locked my door, I always did, you can never be too careful, and I walked towards the house next door. I had never been inside and had kept my distance while the house was occupied, as much of a distance as I could while living side by side with those horrible people. The front yard was overgrown with weeds and I noticed a crushed beer can sat by their porch. I decided to leave it where it was. I would come back later with gloves on and a garbage bag to put it in. There were cigarette butts lying among the weeds as well, 
as if somebody was trying to seed the ground with them and grow a bumper new crop of cancer sticks. The pane on the front door was peeling off and there was a hairline crack in the window nearest to the door. None of this came as a surprise to me. I had made a point of not even wanting to look at the house. It unsettled me. It was so dirty and disheveled. But seeing it up close like this and making myself see the truth warts and all left me feeling depressed. I moved slowly around the side and peered into one of the windows there. The glass was filthy, but I could see pizza boxes standing open on the floorboards and burger cartons on a small table in front of a TV and more scattered across the floor. Shriveled fries lay spilled out of one. There was what must have been a burger bun as well, only now it was covered in green spores. And as I stared, I began to make out tiny specks circling the floor. They were flies, I realized, a lot of them too. I had the awful feeling that there must be a lot more refuse in the house, food and who knew what else, and that the people next door had not bothered to throw out before they left. They just left it to rot and it had attracted the flies, and worse. As I watched, a maggot wriggled out of one of the burger cartons. I walked away, went back into my house and sat there feeling sick. I just wanted to live in a nice place and have a quiet life, but the house next door was ruining everything. After a while, I dragged myself upstairs. I was too unhappy to do anything, so I went to bed. I couldn't get to sleep, though, and around 4am, according to the clock by my bedside, I heard a noise outside. There was someone moving around. Now, like I've said, the road doesn't lead anywhere and no one had any reason to be near my house or the one next door, unless they were lost or up to no good. I got out of bed and crept over to the window to try and see who was out there, and I saw a dark shape trot past. It wasn't a person, it was an animal, some kind of dog, I guessed as my eyes had adjusted to the dark. It was big and feral looking. I had never seen the like before around here and was wondering what had attracted it. When I saw it pad over to the house next door and began sniffing around the door, was it the scent of the mess that people had left behind that had drawn it in? It continued to sniffing as it moved around the house until it was out of sight. I went back to my bed and sat down. Not only was the house next door an eyesore and a bug infested one at that, it was now attracting scavengers. I could have wept. Through the rest of that night and the days and sleepless nights that followed, I did a lot of thinking. I felt like a victim and I hated that, but what could I do? One idea that I had was to sell my house and buy another place with the proceeds. It would break my heart to walk away from the house that had meant so much to my parents in which they had gifted to me, but if I stayed here, I was worried that I would become ill with all the stress and worry. Trouble was, I knew having an empty house next door that was already in such a bad state would massively devalue my property. Financially, it would be a disaster. I kept trying to think of other options, but I just couldn't. The weeks and months continued to drift by. I started keeping my windows closed all the time because... There was an increase in the bad smell coming from the house next door. It made my eyes sting and left me feeling nauseous. 
I heard and saw more animals, all mangy, vicious-looking things near the house next door. I was close to tears most of the time. I hardly slept and I had no appetite. It was all too much. And then from somewhere I found a bit of inspiration. The authorities had not lifted a finger to help me when my life was being ruined by the people next door. And I was not naive enough to think that I was going to change. Unless I kicked up enough of a fuss. The house next door was a public health hazard. Surely it must have been. And there must have been laws against that, right? I would contact the authorities and the press and go on social media and demand that something be done. I would name the realtors and urge the late owner's family and lawyer to do something. This wasn't like me. I had spent my entire life being a pushover. Well, enough was enough. It was time to speak out. But first, I knew I needed proof. I made sure my mobile phone was fully charged and then I went outside. I began by filming the exterior of the house next door. Water dripped from gutters that were clogged with leaves. The windows were covered in a film of grime, and there was more trash that had just been left in the backyard. It disgusted me, but I knew that it wouldn't be enough. I needed to go inside. It probably won't come as a great surprise to learn that I had no idea how to break into a property. I peered at the lock on the front door and then moved to a window and wondered about smashing it, but decided that I would probably end up cutting myself and I would need to go to the ER. I ended up standing back at the front door, and I kicked it in sheer frustration. There was a cracking sound. I kicked it again harder, and the door broke. I pushed it tentatively with my hand, and the door swung open. I was in. The smell hit me first. The bittersweet stench of things gone off. I gagged and covered my mouth and my nose with my hands. My eyes began to water and I blinked rapidly to try and clear my vision. Thankfully, the camera on my phone was unaffected by the miasma lying heavy inside the house. I panned across the narrow hallway, capturing the evidence for my expose. Spiderwebs hung from the ceiling in the exposed light bulb in its center. They were dotted with flies that had been caught, but there were plenty more that were still free. Some were brushing against my face and hands. I tried to push them away with a sweep of my hand and I walked forwards. The room that I had looked into was to my left. I entered it, keeping one eye on the floor. I didn't want to step on any bugs. I knew they would come off worse, but the thought of having to wipe their squashed remains off the sole of my shoe creeped me out. There didn't seem to be anything wriggling around down there, though. I peered nervously into one of the open pizza boxes. A green and black mold spread out across the base of the box. Having seen the mold in the box, I started seeing it everywhere. It crept up the arms of the sofa and filled up burger cartons and even it reached the walls and the floor. I had been about to put my foot in a big old patch of fungal gunk, but had noticed it just in time. Lucky escape, I thought, as I stepped over it, which is when the floor collapsed below my feet. I felt myself falling through rotten floorboards, felt the shock of impact, and the breath being knocked out of my body when I landed moments later. I was in the basement, 
It was dark and dusty and my head was spinning. I gasped, trying to push myself up, and then something touched one of my hands. I flinched, pulled it up and saw a maggot wriggling on my sleeve. I raised my other hand to squash it but realized that there were more on that hand and that there were more on my legs and feet, all around me. The ground was covered in them, and they were wriggling under and over each other, and through a skull that was inches from my left hand. It was the skull of a canine, and the bugs were pouring out of its empty sockets and crawling down its fangs. Just beyond the skull were the remains of another animal. I could make out its spine and its pathetically slim tailbone. The bugs were making it twitch, animating it as if it moved. I realized with disgust that these must have been the skeletal remains of the wild animals that I had seen around the house. Somehow they had gotten down here, and they had not escaped. There were dozens of skeletons. I could see that now in the gloom. Some still had flesh on the bone. One was close to whole. Its flesh was dark and rotting and fetid in that confined and airless space. I stared at it, too horrified to move as the bug slowly began to cover me. I had to get out of there. I had to get out. I told myself this, begged my limbs to move, but I was paralyzed by fear. One of the bugs reached my lips. I couldn't breathe. If I did, I would breathe it in. I felt them on my neck and in my hair. Have to get out, have to get out. My mind raced and somehow I managed to move one of my hands. I lifted it. Bugs covered it like a second writhing skin. I arched my back. I shuffled backward a little. And then I started to get to my feet. Every movement was a battle. Every moment I thought that I was going to fall back down and into a shroud of them. My hands found the wall and I followed it until I found the basement door and I scrambled up the steps. I realized that I had dropped my phone, but there was no way that I was going back for it. I staggered forwards, heading for the hallway, for the front door. And then I was stumbling, falling, and crawling on my hands and knees out onto the front porch. I was still covered in the bugs. I could feel one in my mouth. I spat and a fat, white monstrosity landed in the weeds and wriggled around in a pool of my own phlegm. I clawed at my skin and my hair to try and get more off, all the while heading for my house. I was at my front porch. There were a lot of bugs on the ground by now, but it felt like there were still hundreds of them inside of my clothing. Thankfully, there was no one else there to see as I stripped off my clothes and swept the rest of myself clean as best as I could. And then I ran into my house and straight through to the shower, where I stood under scolding hot water and tried to bear it as long as I could. I was feeling lightheaded by the time that I headed back into my front room. I had on a t-shirt, old blue jeans and sneakers, and I felt my skin raw but clean at the same time. I sat in my favorite comfy armchair and took a deep breath. I needed to think, to understand what had just happened, so I could work out what to do next. One explanation came to me quickly. It was that the house next door was somehow changed, 
it had become a trap, one that attracted victims to feed its new, warped nature. Each victim was drawn in by the scent of the rotting flesh of the animal that had gone before. And me, I had been drawn in on their trail. I knew, though, that this could not be the case. Not in a world where science and reason ruled. The truth was, my nerves were shattered and it was my imagination running riot. But I could not shake the feeling that I had been in the grip of something twisted. Something malevolent and I had escaped from it by the skin of my teeth. I took more deep breaths and told myself that I was safe in here, in my ordered, clean house. I just needed to rest, to close my eyes and get a little bit of sleep. I sighed, started to drift off, and then I saw the bug on my pristine floor. It must have wriggled off my body while I was rushing for the shower. I shot to my feet. I needed to stamp on it, but it was gone. It had disappeared into a gap between the floorboards. And then I saw another. And another one. I couldn't stay in this house after this. I would find a motel for the night and then think on what to do next. Though I honestly didn't know what that would be. I headed for the door and opened it. The house next door brooded, silent and foul. I stared at its windows, its broken door. Something told me that it wanted me to go back inside and lie down in the darkness. I shook my head. I felt like I was losing my mind. I retreated back into my house and I bolted the door. I'm sitting in my bedroom right now writing this. I'm going to press post soon because it's getting harder and harder to concentrate. I'm so tired and I feel sick, and I can't stop thinking about the house next door. How if I went back, I would finally be at peace. There would be no more noise, no more fear. I would know nothing as I decayed, and the house next door fed on my rotting remains. No, no, dang it. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go downstairs and leave my house. I'm not going to let myself be drawn into the house next door. I'm going to walk the mile along the road to where there are lights in the distance and passing traffic. I'm going to hitch a ride and go a long way away and start over. This is the end of my story and a beginning. There's nothing quite like the smell of fresh-baked bread coming out of the oven. What if I told you that you could get all of that deliciousness with none of the time and work involved? Well, you can from Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first ever bake-from-frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Wild Grain uses a slow fermentation process that's easier on your belly, lower in sugar, and rich in nutrients and antioxidants, unlike typical supermarket bread. Every item bakes in 25 minutes or less as well, which is very convenient. Wild Grain is offering delicious products such as an ancient grain sourdough loaf and fresh artisan fettuccine pasta. 
I received both of these items in my wild grain box and both were absolutely delicious. They tasted better than the regular stuff that I would buy at the store and much more fresh. My favorite had to be the ancient grain sourdough loaf. It was great for sandwiches or just good on its own with some butter and oil. And I felt good after eating it, not weighed down or too full. Plus, for every new member, Wild Grain donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank, so you can eat good and do good all at the same time. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com creep and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, or cancel. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus a free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash creep to start your subscription. Yeah, you heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first one when you go to wildgrain.com slash creep. That's wildgrain.com slash creep or you can use promo code creep at checkout. In eight days, I will wake up in 1999 and relive the past 23 years. Written by The Eagle Strikes I'm trapped in a perpetual horror, a groundhog day of seismic proportions. The world feels a little grislier with every reset. I've always known that some sort of higher power must be the architect of my eternal torture. What other explanation could there be? But I no longer simply know of that power. I've seen it. Let me rewind. I'm used to doing that after all. I don't know how many times I've relived the past two decades. Enough times to slowly go insane. I've done some crazy stuff in a manic attempt to break free. I actually thought that I could end the cycle by altering the course of the future. During the present iteration, I haven't really bothered. I'm tired. So you're experiencing the natural course of events, I suppose. In the past, however, I've shaken things up. Let's just say there was an iteration in which I invested wisely, became a billionaire, and used my riches to change the landscape of the world. I even paid extraordinary amounts of money to scientists who promised they could uncover the secrets of the universe. I thought that they could fix whatever had happened to me. The problem is that they never truly believed my story. They didn't really try to understand how a time loop would work, so their research was half-hearted. Nobody has ever been able to save me. And before anybody asks, death is not the answer. It just resets the loop. I find myself waking up in the morning of December 31st, 1999. I celebrate the commencement of a new millennium with my family and we admire the fireworks. At this point, of course, I probably lived for a millennium. The horror of waking in my 13-year-old body with a 36-year-old mind never fades. Well, I suppose I'm probably 3,600 years old. Who knows? I'm certainly not counting. But I always detest reliving my teenage years. I pretend to be a normal child and blend in with my peers. I strive to not say things that would reveal my adult mind. 
One of the scariest aspects of my existence is the possibility of accidentally revealing secrets about the future. That has really created a problem before. In one horrifying iteration, the knowledge of my prophetic ability led the British government to conduct torturous experiments on me. But a few months after the very first reset, I actually decided to seize the opportunity to make better decisions. Maybe it's a second chance I had decided. I took care of my health, I married the same girl, but I was a better husband and managed to prevent the divorce. I spent more time with our kids. I was a better version of myself. As December 31st of 2022 approached for the second time, I thought that I had done what the universe had wanted me to do. You can imagine my unbridled terror when the loop reset, and that's when the penny dropped. I'm stuck. Madness ensued. Four resets later, I tried ending myself. That didn't work. I tried hundreds of times in hundreds of ways. No luck though. So I have given up and resigned myself to this nightmarish existence. Well, perhaps given up wouldn't be entirely accurate. During every fresh iteration, I do try something new to break the cycle. This time, I posted about my experience online. I might pretend to have lost hope, but actions speak louder than words. I mean, I have to be honest, I've never gone completely wild. I've never completely ruined my life. I've stripped and run through the local park, but I've never, say, robbed a bank. I can't sabotage my reputation. What if the loop has ended? Every time that I reach December of this year, I start to wonder that. It's what keeps me from entirely unhinging and doing something foolish. I don't want to endure this infinite torture. I guess that I still believe I can break free of the cycle. I believe in January 1st, 2023. I'm sure all of you will see it. Surely when that day arrives, I'll have discovered a way to move beyond the loop. Eventually, I have to make it to the next year, right? What's the alternative? I can't seem to die after all. Well, that's what I used to believe. After a certain number of resets, I began to notice something disquieting. It started during one particular December of 2022, and it always begins during this final pre-reset month. Something is watching me. I might stroll down the road and catch a glimpse of something in my peripheral vision. On street corners, I've seen a man with eyes that have no pupils. And that's not all. I've heard things that other people say they can't hear. There are shushing noises with no source. I wake in the night, bathing in a pool of sweat, assured that I've spotted a glassy pinpricks in the darkness. Sometimes they rapidly vanish, as if the thing has closed its eyelids to avoid detection. Other times, the eyes linger hovering in front of me. He seems to be getting bolder, closer. Last week, I visited an art gallery and I saw a terrifying painting. My wife and friends commented on its beauty. Boundless beauty, my wife had said. They frowned at my gaunt complexion and one friend even called me a wimp. I suppose it would seem like an odd reaction. After all, the painting depicted an ordinary man. But my eyes strolled down the uncanny valley, gazing at his dreadful face. 
Something about him was marginally off, and for the briefest of moments, the gallery light caught his painted eyes in such a way that the pupils had disappeared. I found myself staring into the vacant eyes from various street corners in my darkened bedroom. They were boring into my skull. I whimpered in terror. I'd been to that art exhibit in every iteration of this time loop. On December 10th, 2022, my wife and friends always dragged me to it, and I'm certain that painting wasn't there in any of the previous iterations. In that exact spot, there had been a painting of Big Ben proudly displaying 11 o'clock. That means things are changing, and I don't think they're changing for the better. I have considered letting go. My fight is fading. Perhaps I should embrace the entity with open arms. Perhaps it has come to release me from this nightmare. It could offer a finite death and put an end to the loop. But what if it delivers a worse fate? Every time I see the glassy-eyed man, I feel my chest coil into a clove hitch. He isn't good. He isn't trying to save me. I need to figure out how to reach January 1st, 2023. And December 24th, 2022. Merry Christmas. The man on my doorstep was a frosty fellow, so I thought of him as a somber snowman. He had not come to offer glad tidings or a tuneful carol. I knew that before he even opened his mouth. I quaked in horror, dreading what he might have to say. Who are you? I timidly queried. Somebody who can help, he responded. I saw your first post. My breath name flatted. I rooted myself to the ground, too shaken by the menacing statement to muster any kind of reply. Who is it, Jake? My wife called. The postman, I shouted. No matter how many lifetimes I live, I despise a line to Vanessa. But the truth is too complicated. There has only been one time that I ever explained my looping predicament to her. She didn't believe me. She thought that I was mentally unwell. Since that iteration, I've always kept it a secret from her. How did you find my address? I eventually whispered. Does that really matter? He replied. I had to see you. I traveled a long way. I think I can stop what's happening to you. Not here, I blurted. My family's inside. Time is not on your side, he firmly told me. I'm trapped in an endless loop, so I would beg to differ. I facetiously quipped. It's not endless, the stranger coldly replied. You feel the thing with no eyes getting closer, don't you? Before I could pry my trembling lips apart, Vanessa appeared behind me. Hello, she exuberantly said. The man weakly smiled. Merry Christmas. I was just telling your husband that I must have foolishly left some of his parcels at the office in town. Right, I added. In fact, I think we should come down to the delivery office. What have I told you about ordering presents late, Jake? Vanessa mumbled, rolling her eyes. I know, I smiled. Don't worry, I'll be quick. Away from Vanessa's prying ears, we decided to meet at the town hall. 
which was only around the corner. Still, the drive to our rendezvous point was unsettling. I followed the man's a black sedan in my beaten-up family car. No matter which radio station I chose, however, I was horrified to find that the same song played, Stairway to Heaven. The once beautiful guitar passage now seemed to harbor a sinister secret. I turned off the radio, but silence didn't make the journey any easier. The disused roads of the festive season felt haunted. Trundling behind the mystery man's sedan, I stole glances at icy alleyways on either side of the road. Shivering, I kept expecting to see him. I was too petrified to breathe, fearing that the glassy-eyed man might find me if I were to gasp for even the smallest pocket of air. We parked on a quiet, residential street and went for a stroll. The sun was descending on the nearby town hall and the streets were starting to empty, but I was a little relieved to see at least some signs of life. Regardless, I knew that wouldn't keep the dark creature from me. What makes time so special? The man suddenly asked. I shrugged. We all have it. The stranger answered. Please, just tell me what. I was interrupted by the jarring sound of nearby lampposts shattering. The night embraced us like a thin blanket. Shushing filled the air like a ghoulishly glacial wisp of wind. I have never been consumed by such existential terror, and this is coming from a man who has been alive for countless millennia. I have even welcomed death with open arms. But that moment above all others truly haunted me. There are things worse than death, after all. Glassy spheres emerged from the blackness, hovering at the other end of the pavement, as hauntingly garish eyeballs illuminated the void which engulfed it. A black shape moved towards us. Find me after you reset, the internet stranger whispered. Time is dwindling, but the man did not have the opportunity to finish his sentence. His face lost its color. Those glassy pinpricks were suddenly occupying the stranger's eye sockets. My mystery visitor howled in agony, and his flash had started to incinerate. There is no fire, but you wouldn't know that from the sight and smell of the man's disintegrating flash. Blackened strips of skin peeled from his skeleton. His wall was that of a dying animal, desperately crying for his savior that it prayed would emerge from the darkness. Nothing came to save the man. Collapsing to his knees, his clothes shriveling atop his melting flesh, the stranger's cries mutated into hoarse whispers. I saw his tongue wither in his open mouth. I think he tried to say something with his final breath, but all that he could achieve was the most horrific moan. He was reduced to the blood-red meat beneath his skin. I suppose there were still gauntly eyes lodged in his skull. They weren't his eyes, though. Bereft of life, the man toppled to the ground. From his burnt body, a specter ascended. Those soulless pinpricks materialized in the shadowy darkness, gazing into my soul. The glassy-eyed man did not speak. I, on the other hand, could not speak. Suddenly, there was pain. Inconceivable pain. I tentatively peered down to see a black limb, flesh composed of night itself, 
piercing my left shoulder. Terrified beyond comprehension, I tried to bellow in pain, but my fragile body could scarcely manage a whimper. When I woke, I was in my 13-year-old body. Of course, death would have been too easy. The man was right. Time, we all have it. Some of us have all of it. And before I could fully process my surroundings, I realized that my body was in agony. Blood was soaking into the bedding from the wound on my left shoulder. My wound was still there. Immortality was no longer a foregone conclusion. The glassy-eyed man could end me. Following a hospital visit with my bewildered and traumatized parents, I resolved to change. I would no longer accept this existence. I might not survive my next encounter with the glassy-eyed man. And who knows where he might send me if he were to kill me. After all, there might be an eternal torture worse than my current one. I couldn't rid my mind of that petrifying thought. I spent years searching for the stranger who had knocked on my door. Unable to wait for the formation of this subreddit in 2010, I decided to simply create it. I posted my experience on there. Nobody came to my house. In desperation, I posted on so many different websites, but I quickly realized my mistake. Surely, I needed to repeat events in exactly the same way. I needed to submit the post on December 23rd, 2022. And I did just that. But there was no house visit. Perhaps I had already made too many changes to the timeline. Fortunately enough, I also avoided the glassy-eyed man. But I found myself resetting to iteration 3 on New Year's Eve 2022. I spent another 23 years waiting impatiently, and then two days ago I submitted the first part of the post. I worried that I might have worded it too differently to catch the eye of the internet stranger, but it worked. Today he visited me. I ushered him into the living room and prayed that my wife wouldn't overhear us. I hurried the stranger through his persistent riddling. I wasn't going to let the glassy-eyed man consume him. What's the significance of New Year's Eve in 1999? I asked. Do I need to go back and fix things? The stranger shook his head and he offered surprisingly a succinct explanation. A time loop is a glitch in the universe, the man said. The entity is here to end the glitch that caused the loop, and he believes that glitch is you. Something else is trapping you. Think, Jake. What happened back in 1999? And that's when I remembered. My body tensed and my heart filled with dread. Some boys were bullying a kid from our neighborhood, a Pippa, a 10-year-old girl who never did anything to hurt anybody. The boys had locked her in the old Hawthorne house, a derelict, horrible place. I stood there telling myself that I wasn't complicit in the crime. I only watched... An action is action, I suppose. While the fireworks had distracted everybody at midnight, I slipped back into the house to rescue her, but she wasn't there. I assumed that she had escaped and gone home. Over the following week, however, missing posters had popped up. Pippa was never found. Even more horrifyingly, neither were the other three boys who had locked her in there. 
all four children had vanished before the start of the new millennium. I told the stranger the story and he nodded. There are things in this world that defy reason. I've seen them, and that's why I came to you. Pippa needs help, he said. I think she and those boys who stole in that house. I don't think the Hawthorne place abides by the rules of time, the man whispered. What do you mean? I asked, shuddering. The stranger paused. Based on things that I've experienced, I would say it's an eleven shrine. An unholy place that ensnares people at the turn of every new year. Such places exist outside of space and time. Pippa is the force that keeps resetting your timeline. If you free her and the boys, you might be saved. They would be returned at the moment of their disappearance in 1999, but that would be the original timeline. A parallel universe. When I returned to the house, I couldn't find the girl, I said. Why would it be any different if I were to revisit it? I told you, the stranger said. An eleven shrine exists beyond the construct of space and time, but it creates a bridge to our world between 11pm and midnight on New Year's Eve. How did you learn these things? I asked, suspiciously, though I was admittedly a little late. I don't think you're ready for that tale, he said. And even if I were to tell you what happened to me, could I not still lie? You just have to trust me, Jake. All right, I conceded. How do I need to prepare for New Year's Eve? When the man explained that I would have to venture into the Hawthorne house at 11pm, I trembled in horror. I've spent Christmas Eve watching my family with teary eyes. Can I avoid the flesh-searing limbs of the glassy-eyed man for six days? I keep seeing those lifeless eyeballs in the darkest crevices of my house. Even now as I write, I could swear that I just heard a shushing from our wardrobe. Have you ever squandered an opportunity to prevent something terrible from happening to somebody? Maybe you've been caught in a time loop too. I suppose that you might not yet realize. You could reset tomorrow. It could happen on New Year's Eve 2034. Who knows? Over the festive period, I couldn't stop thinking about New Year's Eve 1999. I remember being terrified of those bullies just like the little girl. If I had been courageous enough to intervene, I wouldn't have faced the karmic retribution of a time loop. I am still in iteration 3 and since my previous post, I was sure to make note of the internet stranger's contact details, lest the glassy-eyed man should once again reduce my new friend to a smoldering carcass. What's her name? I asked. Harold Langley, the man answered. Harold still wouldn't tell me about how he knew such corrupted things as eleven shrines and spiritual forces. He told me that I already had everything that I needed to know. I need to go back to the Hawthorne house between 11pm and midnight on New Year's Eve. Any New Year's Eve would do in fact. Well, um, I could simply wait to be reset to 1999. Then I could stop the boys from ever locking Pippa in the house, I suggested. Harold shook his head. Even if you were to return to the past and drag the children miles away from the Hawthorne house, the shrine would still entrap them at 11pm on that fateful New Year's Eve. Remember, they're already there. 
the house exists outside of time. Much like your own loop, no matter where they might travel, their bodies will still reset to that house at 11pm. They can only be freed from within the 11 shrine. Sending me back to 1999 is a convoluted way of sending a message, I grumbled. She doesn't know what she's doing, Jake. Harold gently assured me. Pippa is calling for help from an ungodly realm, and that has incurred an abnormality in time. After a long discussion, I could no longer escape the fact that Harold knew far more about this topic than me. I had spent millennia searching for an answer and I finally had one. I just couldn't accept that. In truth, I simply didn't want to go anywhere near the Hawthorne house. It imbued me with unspeakable thoughts. Every time I walked past it, I felt evilness surge through me. And I know that every child in my neighborhood felt the same way. The Hawthorns had died decades before our time. But we knew that something was deeply wrong with the building that they had left behind. The house felt like a living, unfeeling thing. It was crooked, out of place, ill-intentioned. New Year's Eve, 2022. The Hawthorne house was exactly as I had remembered it, though the neighborhood was certainly much livelier. There were no missing posters and the roads were littered with revelers, preparing for the new year that I had spent to cease the centuries attempting to reach. 10.41 p.m. 19 minutes until I could reset, unless the glassy-eyed man finds and ends me. If Harold were correct, my only salvation would be to enter the Hawthorne house. At 11 o'clock in the evening, the shrine would open. There's something much more frightening about seeing a haunted house in the real world. I have never minded eerie buildings in photographs or films, but the Hawthorne house is the most terrifying place that I have ever visited. I gently walked from the moss-covered gate to the fatigued front door which was painted a long faded blue. In the front yard, there was an unlabeled stone cross, submerged in overgrown, withered grass blades. There were three stories to the neglected building. Dark chasms lay behind the glassy panes and the attic had a misted oval window. I felt a piercing pang of horror in my chest at the sight of a black shape moving behind the glass. Other than a private property sign on the front gate, there was nothing to ward away intruders. There was no barricade across the rotting front door, and it was unlocked, so it creakily inched open with a light push. Perhaps the mere sight of the horrid place was enough to deter most people from trespassing. I wish that I could have the same luxury. As I entered the Hawthorne house, I pulled my phone out of my pocket and lit the dismal place with my torch, revealing a hallway that led into a ginormous staircase. There was an open doorway on the left-hand side of the hallway and it led onto the lounge. I strolled into the dusty, asbestos-riddled death trap. In the living area, there was a sofa which had been partially devoured by vermin, but I collapsed onto it and waited. 11 p.m. My heart stopped. I wasn't fading away and I was still in the present. No, this isn't the present, I reminded myself. The Hawthorne house exists outside of time. Nevertheless, my phone's lock screen displayed at 2300, which was good enough for me. 
I wasn't resetting. That was the important thing. Before I could wrap my head around that, however, I noticed something. The walls were groaning. Chest undulating in terror, I leapt to my feet. The winding foundations of the house seemed to lament my presence. I took a look at the world outside of the mucky lounge windows. My dimly lit neighborhood was rapidly vanishing from view. Within seconds, everything beyond the exterior of the house was black. The bridge to the physical realm was gone. Though time was a foreign concept in that shrine to evil, I still felt that it shouldn't be wasted. I had no idea what happened to the children, and I had no idea what was about to happen to me. I needed to find them, and then I could focus on finding a way to reopen the bridge and escape. I don't know how to exit an Eleven Shrine, Harold had quietly admitted to me. Time works differently in there, and I think it only opens a bridge to our world when it wants to do so. So, I suppose you have to give it something that it wants more than Pippa and those boys. Those words rang in my head. I found myself meandering in the living room of that lost house. There was a large frame above the fireplace. Using my phone light, I studied the unnerving canvas that loomed above me. It was a painting of the Hawthorne house in its bygone glory days. I didn't recognize the three people standing in front of the house but I assumed it had to be the Hawthorne family. The mother and father were prim and proper. They must have lived in the 1940s, judging by their fashion, but I wasn't really looking at them. I was looking at their boy. He was a skeletal thing. His flesh seemed to cling tightly to the outline of his skull. The indignant expression on his face was communicated through joyless eyes and thin lips. He had a complexion that was almost wholly white and that strangely gave the jubilant expressions of his parents' faces a sinister undertone. Why were they so happy? Their son appeared half-dead. Needless to say, the painting absolutely horrified me, but everything in that house horrified me. The swirly, nightmarish colors of the artwork felt like a fever dream. In the pristine oval windows at the top of the painted house, there was movement. The paint was actually moving. Unlike the movement that I had seen in the real-life oval window, these painted shapes were crystal clear. Pippa and the three bullies. Their mouths were agape, much like the man in the scream, and they were huddling together, ferociously banging their tiny fists on the window. As if that weren't horrifying enough, there was more movement in the picture. The painted mother turned around and started strolling along the path heading towards the house. The sun was decaying before my very eyes. His painted form seemed to be crumbling, yet the father smiled and the mother continued walking towards the house. She reached the front door. Thumping followed. And I do not simply mean that I saw the painted mother thump the painted door. There is a thumping sound on the real-life door, which was in the hallway behind me. A blood-curdling screech followed. It was a woman, I suppose, but her voice was no longer sounding human. There was a guttural and distorted quality to it. Don't take my child from me. I had no desire to hang around and find out what she meant. I sprinted from the living room to the hallway, 
praying that the front door would hold and I held my body up the rotting stairs, two at a time. Plunging into the darkness, I prepared for the door to fly from its hinges. The thing for which I did not prepare for was suddenly finding myself standing on a well-lit refurbished landing. The Hawthorne house had suddenly transformed into a lavish home. From the top of the staircase, I turned to face the downstairs hallway. The banging on the front door had ceased, and it opened to reveal the mother. She was an ordinary person, not a frightening apparition. I realized that I had wandered through a portal in time. I would say that my initial guess had been accurate. It seemed to be a snapshot of the 1940s. Jonathan, tell Bert that dinner will be ready in half an hour. The mother shouted. He's not in here, Sarah. Jonathan replied. The father's ghost startled me, though the couple seemed much jollier in this memory. He strolled straight through my body and walked down the stairs. While well, I told the boy that he could only play until I finished taking down the laundry, Sarah huffed. He was with the Dalton boys across the road. Jonathan said now striding across the downstairs hallway. I shall fetch him. The ghosts of the parents evaporated and the house transported to a different moment in time. There was crying from a room farther down the landing. As I walked towards it, I noticed more frames on the walls. They were less macabre than the portrait that I had seen in the living room. There were three paintings of the individual Hawthorne family members. Seeing an ajar door on the left side of the landing, I peered through the slight opening. The sobbing mother was sitting at her dressing table which faced away from the doorway. I could only see the back of her body. The father was holding her shoulders and futilely striving to console her. I cannot live without him, Jonathan, she wailed. A mother cannot live without her baby. You shouldn't have to do that, Jonathan promised. I have found a way to return his soul to us. Francis acquired some bucks. There are rituals that can help, but they come with a price. Any price, Sarah coldly interrupted. And what of the boys who murdered our child? Jonathan asked. Death would be too merciful. She said, I agree. From my readings, I have learned ways in which we could make them suffer. If we could transform this house into unhallowed ground, we could ensnare their souls and eternally trap them here. They would become part of the building's woodwork. We would have to build an eleven shrine on the eve of the new year. There might be consequences for others who step foot in this land, but it... Do it, Sarah icily whispered. The world washed away again. I saw brief flashes of the parents in their bedroom. They were drawing bloody patterns on the walls. I heard sourceless screams, cries of anguish from the children who had murdered Bert, I assume. The jigsaw pieces were sliding together. The souls of Bert's killers were embedded in the Hawthorne house. Sarah and Jonathan had succeeded, but had they also managed to resurrect their child? I shuddered, remembering the ghastly painting of a withering bird in the living room. Something told me that a happily ever after hadn't been in the cards for the fractured family. The lights extinguished. The fresh decor aged in seconds, returning the Hawthorne house to the present. Well, I suppose I wasn't really experiencing any sort of time period. 
everything faded away except for one thing, one person, the mother. She was still sitting at her dressing table facing away from the doorway. Her vanity mirror was cracked and coated in filth. I couldn't see her reflection. Her clothes were dusty and tattered. Her once beautiful blonde hair was withered, and she was stroking it with a hairbrush. Her strokes were so vicious that clumps of hair were ripping from her head. No way, I'm not going in there. I attempted to cautiously back away from the door, but floorboards betrayed me. They moaned beneath my weight. The hairbrushing abruptly stopped. The old rickety vanity stool squeaked as the mother had adjusted herself. I expected her to twist her entire body around to face me, but she didn't. Instead, she simply twisted her head. She twisted beyond breaking point. She twisted her head 180 degrees. What was even ghastlier, however, was the face which gazed upon me. It was decomposing. Maggots swam through the cavities in the mother's flesh. Her lipless mouth opened, revealing rotten teeth. She did not smile as she had in the painting. Where is my son? Her voice cried. To protect itself, my haunted brain had detached from reality. So when the bedroom door slammed shut, I was relieved and petrified in equal measure. I was relieved to be free of the mother's ghoulish gaze, but I was petrified of what I would face next. Remembering why I had come to the Hawthorne house, I resolved to keep searching for Pippa and the boys. I didn't know what kind of demonic specter that I had just seen in the bedroom, and I didn't want to know. Standing in the upstairs hallway, desperately trying to catch my breath, I became aware of a squelching sound. I cast my phone torch onto the wall behind me. A black liquid of unknown composition had scrawled three direful words. Father is home. Moving my light onto the paintings, I saw Bert and Sarah in their portraits. The third painting, on the other hand, was merely a blank canvas. Jonathan had left his portrait. I heard the front door open and slam shut. Loud footsteps moved with immense speed and purpose, clunking up the stairs. Crying in utterly primal fear, I ran towards the far end of the landing. I opened the final door on the left, hearing floorboards groan beneath the weight of some hulking and monstrous entity. For a split second, before I stepped through the open doorway, I caught a glimpse of something in the glow of my phone light. The father was far taller and wider than he had appeared in the flashbacks. His gargantuan, ghostly form could barely squeeze through the upstairs corridor. His decomposing face was much like that of his wife, but his eyes were bloody spheres in his sockets. I slammed the door behind me and locked it. There was a cacophony of fists pounding on the door. The father said nothing. His fury spoke far louder than words. I found myself in a second bedroom, Bert's bedroom, heart still not slowing. The frights did not cease. Jake... A disembodied girl's voice hissed. I froze. It's Pippa, she continued. We're in the hideaway. We've been here for months. Where's the hideaway? I asked. The banging on the bedroom door had finally quieted. Pippa whispered again. Behind the wardrobe. Hurry, I think they heard me. 
I found the wardrobe on the left-hand wall and I started to push it to the side. It was surprisingly light. Once it was a few feet to the right, a small opening was revealed in the wall behind it. I couldn't see anything inside the darkened doorway, but I had to press forwards. I used my phone to light the way and I found myself ascending a small set of stairs. Of course, the attic with the oval window. I tentatively clambered up the staircase, keeping my eyes and ears keenly peeled for anything untoward. When I reached the top, I stretched my hand towards the door handle before me, creaking. An icy breath skirted across my left ear. Something was standing on the step behind me. They murdered him, a voice groaned. I didn't need to turn my head. I knew that it was the mother. Quivering, I lightly pressed the standby button to switch off the screen. On the dark, glassy surface of my phone, I saw the walking corpse of the half-decaying mother standing just behind me. Her gaunt face was illuminated by my torchlight. I screamed in terror, but I was quickly silenced by a gnarled, bony hand that clasped over my mouth. That only made me scream louder. I shook the creature off me, whirled around, and she was gone. Too frightened to spend another minute in this house of nightmares, I proceeded to repeatedly slam my shoulder into the attic door. Finally, it gave way. I cast the phone light into the attic, expecting to be met with emptiness, but I turned to the right to find myself looking upon four malnourished children, who were shivering beneath the oval window. The world outside remained an endless void, but that was besides the point. I had done it. I had found the girl who had been trapping me in the loop for thousands of years, and it hadn't been a fruitless endeavor. The children were crying incessantly. I'm so sorry, Pippa said. I was just so scared. Can you help us leave this place? We didn't mean to do it, one of the boys whimpered. The voices made us lock her in here, another boy added. The third boy simply nodded, seemingly too traumatized to speak. Okay, I eventually managed to say, do any of you know something that could help us escape? Their eyes widened. You don't know how to free us? One of the boys shakily asked. I didn't respond. My mind was worrying. I thought about everything that Harold had told me, and then I realized that I didn't need his help. I needed the help of the people who had created the shrine. Sarah, I screamed. Jonathan. What are you doing? Pippa asked, horrified. We need to get away from them. Before I could reply, the wall at the far end of the attic had started to ripple. Like swimmers coming to the surface of a pool. The dreadful mother and father seeped through the torn wallpaper. The children screeched, but I stood my ground, keeping the torchlight on the horrible abominations that were striding towards us. Is your son buried in the front garden? I asked. No reply. The emotionless demons looked upon me with their awful eyes. If you create a bridge back to the real world, I could return him to you. That's what you want, isn't it? The mother started to walk towards me and I trembled in immobilizing terror. He should be here with us, she wheezed. Open the bridge, I repeated. You can't leave the house, can you? 
I can return his bones to you. I can give you peace. But you must return all of us to our rightful places on our rightful timelines. The ghouls stared for a long time. The only sound of that haunted room was the blubbering of the four children who were hiding behind me. I received my answer in the form of light pouring into the room. Not light from my phone, light from the oval window. I and the children turned to face the real world. Fireworks filled the sky. As we watched with teary eyes, the children dissipated. The outside world in turn rapidly changed. The sun rose and set thousands of times in a matter of seconds. Years were passing by. When the earth eventually slowed, I knew that it was 2022 again. Return our son, the father wheezed. When I turned to face them, the terrifying entities were gone. I sprinted down these stairs from the attic, bounded across to Bert's bedroom, flung my panicked body along the hallway and started to sprint down the main staircase. Gliding across the hallway towards the open door, I prepared to taste freedom. Scorching agony. Horrified, I found myself engulfed in darkness before being thrown onto the floor of the hallway. I bellowed in pain, feeling a searing sensation across my skin. No, I whined in horror. The glassy-eyed man. He was standing on the front porch, obstructing what seemed to be the only exit from this house of a tricks. He was little more than a shadow, filling the doorway with his black form and white pinpricks. I fixed it, I yelled. The loop is over. No response came from the inhuman entity. No movement. I checked the time on my phone. 11.02 p.m. It's after 11 o'clock and I've not reset. I explained exasperately. The loop is over. After an eternal moment, the shadow faded into the blackness. The glassy pinpricks merged with the night sky, joining a canopy of twinkling stars. My strained heart finally loosened. Gingerly, I attempted to leave the house. I took a step out of the porch. Nothing stopped me. I hurried into the front yard and tore at the grass with my bare hands. Dirt under my half-broken nails, I quickly dug my way to the cluster of bones that the Hawthorne parents had buried. Why did they not keep the bones in the house? Did they ever manage to resurrect their son? Why were their souls trapped in the eleven shrine with their son's murderers? So many unanswered questions. I delicately and respectfully placed the pile of bones inside the main hallway, quickly exiting the Hawthorne house. As I tiptoed backwards, keeping my eye on the open front door, I saw a bony hand stretch across the wooden floor and drag Bert's remnants out of view. As I passed through the gate, the door to the Hawthorne house swung shut. That was 15 minutes ago, and I hope beyond all hope to never reopen that terrible chapter of my life. At this very moment, I find myself sitting on the curb, typing my update and staring vacantly at these swarm of partygoers. They're blissfully unaware of the horrors lurking in the abhorrent building just behind me. 11.22 p.m. I've never lived beyond 11 p.m. on December 31st, 2022. That must be a promising sign. I'm free, surely. 
At 11pm, I didn't wake up in 1999. Pippa must have released me. But as the Hawthorne house released me, as the glassy-eyed man released me, I suppose that I'll never have a definite answer. I'll always wince in terror at the sight of cavernous crevices. I'll always be looking for those white eyes. I cannot conquer the unknown, but that's not my battle. After thousands of years, I would simply settle for seeing January 1st, 2023. At midnight, let's hope that I manage to post a comment. I swore that I would tell nobody how my brother really went missing. Written by Toucan the Rapper. Now that mom and dad are gone, I need to tell the truth about Jamie. I swore that I would take the secret to my grave. That was before the accident, though. Their car crashed on Saturday, see? Exactly a year to the day since Simon Kincaid got fried in the electric chair. I thought, keeping the truth to myself, spaining my folks the agony of the truth was the right thing to do. That was a terrible, terrible mistake. I can't sleep unless I know somebody else knows what really happened. I'm not looking for forgiveness, atonement, or even freedom from your judgment. I just... I can't carry the secrets anymore. Jamie is, or rather was, my older brother. A fair bit older too, five years. I was 100% the little sister that only existed to save a marriage. It worked by and by. Mom and dad bounced back from borderline divorce when I was born. And they were together right up until their Honda Civic plowed off that bridge. For a while, we actually had the perfect family. And then came the day that Jamie told me about the whole. I was 12, he was 17, and both nearing our birthdays. It was summer and a hot one at that. 104 on the mercury when we grabbed our bikes to ride out to the hole. Jamie had found it earlier in the week when he and his idiot friends were quad biking the trails in Herbert's woods. Unbeknownst to Jamie... They had also been only half a mile away from the outdoor encampment of off-grid paranoid shut-in Simon Kincaid. This alone was enough to seal his fate. When he first found the hole, Jamie didn't have the gear that he took to the indoor climbing place every other weekend. That's why he wanted to come back with me a week later, to climb down it. I pointed out to him that a hole in the forest isn't the same as an indoor climbing wall with safety fall mattresses and instructors. And he told me to shut up and stop being a butt munch. I still miss him. I would give anything to hear him call me any one of those dozens of 90s playground insults again. It was an hour of solid cycling before he reached the hole. I had never been that deep into Herbert's woods before. Not that I knew it in that blistering summer afternoon, but I would never again either. Well, that's not technically true. I did go back once, to show the police and my frantic parents where I had last seen Jamie. Jamie's idiot friends, Ben and Adam, were waiting for us with Adam's truck. The beaten and rusted 88 Comanche was essential for Jamie's plan to explore the depths of the hole. 
The pickup's tow bar would act as an anchor for the rope, and Adam and Ben would pick up the spare slack cord, using it to lower Jamie down by hand. My role in this scheme was being there because mom and dad were at work, so Jamie was saddled with me for the day and had to include me whether he wanted to or not. If I wanted to look back with rose-tinted glasses, I could say Jamie also thought it could be a brother-sister bonding experience. I know deep down that that's not true though. I also don't deserve the privilege of viewing that say through any lens other than the stark, harrowing truth. I was nervous even before we got deep into the forest. Herbert's Woods had a reputation in the schoolyards of our small town, had done for generations. Murderers lived in Herbert's Woods, didn't you know? So said the various classroom rhymes and playground songs at least. Any local kid could tell you about the sprawling miles of towering evergreens, and how they were home to escaped lunatics from the St. Dionysus Mental Institution a few miles out of town, near the larger settlement of a marathon. I was too old to admit that I still believed in the urban legends, but not old enough to be unspooked as the trees and shadows around the dirt path grew thicker and thicker. I had to keep convincing myself the noises that I could hear coming from the dense undergrowth and rustling foliage had normal, wholesome, nature documentary explanations. For the first time in my life, I was actually grateful to see my older brother's two idiot sidekicks. It was early evening and the canopy of tree branches overhead was thick enough to mute the dwindling sunlight to near darkness. In the glare of the 88 Comanche's headlights was a welcome reprieve as far as my preteen resolve was concerned. Not that I let Jamie or his moronic adolescent stooges see this, of course. When Ben asked if I was scared, I gave him the finger. Then Jamie punched him on the arm and knocked the can of beer out of his hand, which was nice. The last big brotherly thing you ever did. Ben and Adam were thick as the gnarled trunks and roots surrounding us, but Jamie was smart. He had brought along plenty of rope and flashlights and even a set of walkie-talkies. After I informed him that I would tell Mommy brought me along to Herbert's Woods too if he didn't, Jamie agreed to let me be the radio operator while the other two lowered him. He had his longest rope about 80 meters. He explained before showing me the hole that their flashlight beams didn't reach the bottom, but a stone they chucked down there had hit solid ground. Jamie refused to disclose how long it took for the echo of the stone landing to drift back up to the surface. He assured me it couldn't be any deeper than 30 to 50 meters though. When I asked him how he had figured that out, he told me to shut up. That's how. My first question when I finally saw the hole was why on earth Jamie wanted to climb down it. My second was if there was anything I could do to stop him. There wasn't. My bluff of threatening to actually tell mom this time was countered with a do-it-then-turd wipe. He knew that I wouldn't. I was his 12-year-old little sister. I was too young to rebel of my own accord, but old enough to want my rebellious teenage brother to think that I was cool. That's why I gulped and took the walkie-talkie from his hand, instead of convincing him to come down from the literal ledge as I should have. The hole didn't look natural. There wasn't a sinkhole or the entrance to a cave system. About seven feet in diameter, the perfect circle was a sheer drop into murky nothingness. It lay about a five-second walk from the dirt track, 
in a small clearing. Adam and Ben had spent all day clearing through bushes to get the trek as close as possible to the rim. Although their efforts had done little to detract from how cramped and claustrophobic this patch of bare earth in the near solid blanket of trees felt. Jamie was right about the hole being deep too. My flashlight revealed nothing but more darkness when I pointed it over the smooth lip of the hole. As I said, perfect vertical drop. The earth and dirt of the walls were compressed so tightly that it looked more like clay. Shaft is perhaps a more appropriate word now that I think about it. Actually, no. Shaft sounds too innocent. It was a hole. A gaping, yawning abyss staring back at you whole. Why did Jamie want to climb down it? Because it was there and because he could. And as far as my 12-year-old self was concerned, because boys were stupid. Jamie was one of those kids, though. Mom and Dad had gotten him into indoor rock climbing as an outlet after, well, a few incidents of trespassing on quote-unquote abandoned factories that nearly got him a record. If we had been born 20 years later, he would have had an Urbex channel on YouTube. By his reckoning, the hole might be an old well with a dead body from pioneer times at the bottom, or it might be the entrance to an unfinished nuclear bunker. Either of these near certainties would be, in his exact words, as cool as Satan taking a dump on a Metallica meets Iron Maiden mashup album cover. That was enough justification for Jamie, and I had learned very early in my childhood that there was little point arguing once he started making weirdly specific 80s metal references. After getting harnessed up, Jamie instructed me to go and wait by Adam's truck. Because of our near constant sibling bickering, he was visibly surprised when I didn't argue. I told him in no uncertain terms that the hole creeped me out. Jamie called me a baby and then Ben decided to join in. Differences. The two words that Ben chose to call me began with a P and a B, and definitely weren't words Jamie could stomach hearing directed at his little sister. That's the exact moment life as I blissfully knew it ended. Jamie saw red, but Ben had been standing on the other side of the seven-foot hole out of punching range. My older brother did the first thing next his suddenly enraged mind could think of. He picked up the heaviest fallen tree branch within arm's reach and hurled it at Ben. A direct hit. Jamie could bench a hundred pounds and he grunted when he picked up that log. It wasn't light. It was no surprise at all that Ben went cross-eyed when the wood had bounced off of his head. Especially when a thin red river immediately began pouring from the fresh wound just above his hairline. I didn't start screaming at Jamie because of the blood. I started because when Ben's knees buckled, he swayed, turning in the air mid-collapse, and fell straight into the hole. As Jamie pointed out after the five minutes it took to calm me down, my wailing meant that we didn't hear Ben hit the bottom. He could have gotten stuck though, he could be fine, but the only way to know would be if Jamie went down the hole. My brother was absolutely positive about that. To Jamie's credit, even though there were tears in his eyes and he was clearly terrified, he didn't think twice about jumping into the yawning void to rescue his friend. He also immediately took responsibility for his mess up, as evidenced by his lack of retaliation 
went at him and knocked the wind out of him with a gut punch. The three of them went all the way back to kindergarten. I think that's why Adam stayed instead of jumping straight into his truck and going to the police. He knew Jamie and he knew that Jamie had never intended to actually hurt Ben, let alone possibly kill him. He also knew that Jamie's aim wasn't that great. The chances that the log had hit Ben's head for any reason other than sheer fluke were slim. Jamie had royally screwed up, but Adam wouldn't snitch on him. At least not until they tried to rescue Ben, or, although none of us said it out loud, had confirmed he was dead. And so Jamie was lowered into the hole by Adam as planned. Now, though, the stakes were much, much higher than a simple testosterone-fueled desire to explore dark, forbidden spaces for no reason. Face covered in tears and still sniveling, I took my place leaning against the hood of the truck. My knuckles were white tight around the walkie-talkie. Even all these decades later, I can still clearly remember how much I prayed in my head that the knot around the tow bar would hold. I almost begged Jamie not to lower himself any further once everything below his navel had vanished from sight. Almost made one last attempt to stop my brother from descending on that smooth, perfectly circular chasm. I almost, but I didn't. Instead, I gave a final loud sniffle while I watched Adam let loose more of the rope to help Jamie disappear into the earth. My brother caught my eye as he absailed the last few inches with his head still above ground. When all that remained was his nose, brow, and hair, he actually found enough composure to throw me a reassuring nod. Before I could return it though, he was gone. My heart was getting its first experience of real intense cardio, the kind of stuff that soccer moms pay 200 bucks a month on spin classes to achieve. I kept having to convince myself that my fears Jamie wouldn't reemerge from the hole were just that. Just fears. Me, being a baby. Because that's who I was in all of this. I was Jamie's baby sister. My palms were moist, but nowhere near as wet as my tear-stained cheeks. I managed not to scream again, though. For a little while longer, at least. If I had known just how accurately prophetic my apprehension was, however, I would have opened my mouth and let forth a howl so loud every bird in Wisconsin would be shaken from their trees. I didn't know, though, did I? I still trusted my cool older brother's almost genuine bravado. That's why instead of screaming, I did as instructed and spoke to him on the walkie-talkie. He absailed down the hole slowly, despite every second counting if Ben had any hope of being recovered alive. This was the very early 90s, remember, no cell phones. As dumb as Jamie's rescue attempt was, it was still a faster bet than trying to find a payphone. The first four to five minutes were filled mostly with Jamie rambling to keep himself focused. He apologized over and over to me, to Adam, to Ben, to mom and dad. It was all that he could do not to spiral into a panic attack at the realization that he may have just caused the death of one of his closest friends. There was more than one. Man, I'll be facing hard time for this. I'm gonna die behind bars. Moment two. I tried my best to hide my sobs and sound calm when I responded, but I don't think it did much good. I wasn't calm. I was in shock, weak-kneed, and on the verge of puking. 
I also found it difficult to placate Jamie's worries when my older brother's assessment was pretty much bang on the money. He had possibly killed Ben. He would more than likely face jail time for murder. Every it'll be okay was a massive lie and the increasing tempo of the ragged breast between his words confirmed to me that he knew it. Ben's fall happened so fast. Our day went from building childhood memories to birthing lifelong trauma in the blink of an eye. Jamie's descent was equally traumatic as Ben's tumble, but it was anything but instant. Every second listening to his cracking voice in the handset felt like a lifetime long. I don't know which I prayed harder for in my head. That the rope wrapped around the rusty tow bar held, or that Adam's teenage arms didn't buckle under the strain. Both worst case scenarios looked imminent more than once. Every creak of Adam's truck made me yelp. Every groan that he made twisted a fresh knot in my gut. When the worst did eventually happen, none of my foreboding predictions prepared me for it. I wasn't even close. Some conversations stick with you clear as crystal no matter how many years pass. My final one with Jamie before he... Before he was... Before the hole took him hasn't faded even a fraction of a percent despite 30 years having gone since. How far down are you now, idiot? I sniffled into the receiver, not knowing that it would be the last question he would ever answer. About 55 meters, I think. Came Jamie's his-pop feedback heavy response. I thought that I would be at the bottom by now. I told you that it was deeper than you thought, idiot. I laughed wirely into the walkie-talkie trying and failing not to show how far from funny I found the situation. Jamie's return attempt was just as pathetic. Ah, well, maybe, maybe if you knew how to talk at a human pitch, my ears could hear your words. You, you helium huffing, um. You can hear me now, idiot. And then I couldn't hold it in any longer. Jamie, I'm scared. Please tell Adam to pull you back up. He's running out of slack rope. I want to go home. What's happening down there? Are you? Shh. My babbling was cut off by a sharp hiss from the walkie-talkie. Shut up, dingus. I think I've I found the bottom. Yeah, I found the bottom. Sure enough, the rope in Adam's hand had gone from Golden Gate Bridge support cable taut to wriggling at the lip of the hole like a beached earthworm. Adam immediately sunk to his knees when the tension of Jamie's weight had released, face red and veiny arms limp. He didn't let go of the rope, though. A fatal error. The crackling voice of Jamie didn't stop either. There's a big, like, like a cave or something down here, but it's like square. Jamie, Jamie, what's going on down there? I yelled at the black box in my hand. Can you see... Ben? The walkie-talkie said. Ben, are you down here? Crap, man. It's so dark. This flashlight isn't doing anything. Ben. Ben! Jamie, what's happening? Have you found? My tear-choked questioning was cut off by a loud, shrill, microphone feedback pitch scream. Jamie's scream. It didn't come from the walkie-talkie, though. It came from the hole. Jamie! I yelled again, both at the hole and the walkie-talkie clenched tight in my sweaty grip. Jamie, are you hurt? Jamie, talk to me. 
Pull me up. Pull me up. Pull me up. I found Ben. I found Ben, oh God. I found Ben. Pull me up. He's... He's open. I can see his... Uh, tell Adam to pull me up right now. There was a long pause during which I could hear nothing but static. I kept yelling Jamie's name, but just before I nodded to Adam to start pulling him up, my older brother's voice returned on the radio waves. It was a single word. Wait. Jamie noticed something that snapped him out of his overwhelming panic spiral. I didn't have to ask what. It's Ben. He's... He didn't survive the fall. No doubt he didn't, but there's a lot of blood. He died when he hit the ground. I can see where he landed. But it's not where he is. There's a trail like... Like something dragged his body over. And then the second scream came from the hole. This one wasn't Jamie. It wasn't even human. The pitch of the half-snarl, half-shriek that geysered from the wound in the earth oscillated far too fast to be human. I would say the second scream was bestial, animalistic, but even that doesn't feel right. Growing up in a small, semi-rural town surrounded by woodlands, you get used to animal sounds. Some are frightening sure and many conjure images of unspeakable nightmares when heard by unaccustomed ears. No animal that I have ever heard, even the ones that were fighting, screwing, or dying, made noises that sounded like that second scream. It was so loud, a horde of kind birds swarmed from the tree canopy into the orange sunset beyond. Like they knew this thing that we had disturbed wasn't of the forest, and their mocking crowing was a big old, I told you so. The abyssal screaming from the hole lasted a full ten seconds. Probably doesn't sound that long to you reading this as mere pathetic words on a screen. But you weren't there. You don't know. If someone told me Adam and I stood there listening to that ragged shrieking for an entire century, I would have believed them. I only realized how hard I had been clenching my jaw and fists during the howl by how much they suddenly hurt when it stopped. The silence that followed felt almost as long as the maddening roar itself. Then, from the walkie-talkie, came the last words I ever heard my brother say. Don't. Don't tell Mom I brought you with me. Tell her I snuck out. I shouldn't have. Whatever he had seen down there, whatever had screamed at him in the darkness at the bottom of the hole, it had left him in a state of instant detached disassociative shock. For comparison, even the sight of his best friend's body, a body that he himself created, didn't destroy Jamie's psyche as fully and totally as whatever his flashlight was revealing. I didn't know whether this is fortunate or unfortunate, but he didn't live long enough to tell me what it was. The rope dangling over the lip of the hole sprang back into iron rod tightness. Jamie's voice on the headset was ripped into static near silence by a short and sharp burst of ringing feedback. Adam, his blistered hand still wrapped tight around the rope, lurched forward and over the edge of the pit. I finally let myself scream that bird-disturbing scream that I mentioned. Too bad the crows had already had the sense to flee. It was chaos and all of it happened at the same moment.
Before I could make sense of any of it though, uh, the truck that I'd been leaning against was pulled toward the hole by the rope, just like its owner. Since I had had all my weight against it, I was pushed violently by the sudden shift of the three-ton vehicle. I fell forward, the smooth, clayish lip of the darkness rushing toward me. I closed my eyes, awaiting the spray of air whistling past my face. I heard the twang of the last of the rope getting sucked into the hole, and I realized that Adam had already been yanked to his doom by the same impossibly strong pull from the other end. The pole that was using the climbing rope to reel in the rusted pickup truck like a sea bass. In the slow down, adrenaline time of my fall, my expectations went from the pressing rush of plummeting into the void like Jamie, Adam, and Ben, to feeling the crush of the truck pinning my body into the earth. Neither horrifying sensation came. Instead, before I knew what it was, I felt the grip of a hand on my shoulder. Simon Kincaid's fate was sealed the moment that he decided to set up his makeshift off-grid encampment in Herbert's woods. If he had chosen to live on any of the other million square miles of unclaimed wilderness, he wouldn't have been close enough for the police to pin everything on him. He also might not have been close enough to hear the almost alien scream from the hole. He definitely wouldn't have been close enough for his evening jog to bring him along the same dirt path that Adam's truck was fiercely wrenched from at the exact moment that it was wrenched. And of course, it goes without saying that I would with absolute certainty be dead right now if Herbert's Woods hadn't felt homely to Simon Kincaid when he was seeking a new place to live barely six months earlier. Simon Kincaid has saved my life and he paid for it with his own. I've had to learn to live with that this past year. Honestly, I'm not sure how much longer I can. If it wasn't for me, he would have never had Jamie's blood on his hands, both in the eyes of the law and literally. I was near thrown out of the way of the truck just in time. Instead of plummeting into the hole, I landed in a sobbing heap beside it. There was a loud, final crunch from the rusted tow bar, but amazingly it held. This crunch of defiant steel was accompanied by a last twanging from the rope before it felt still and lifeless. My memories start to get hazy after this. I remember pointing at the hole, I remember screaming, My brother, my brother, over and over again. I remember the dirty, borderline homeless hero who had saved my life, retracting the worryingly slack cord from the circular void. What do I remember the most, though? Obviously, what I remember most is the dark red liquid dripping from the torn end when the last of the dangling length was finally pulled into the daylight, considerably less than 80 meters later. I barfed when I saw it, all over Simon Kincaid, which is how my DNA got on his clothes. Handling the blood-soaked rope was how he got Jamie's. The cycle ride home has always been a blur, even as it was happening. So were the various police interviews or conversations with my parents in the weeks and months that followed. I didn't stop to speak to Simon Kincaid or even thank him. I just wanted my mom. Unfortunately for Mr. Kincaid, he would wake up the next day to find a SWAT team surrounding his trailer in the forest, the barrels of their guns all aimed directly at him. 
From that day on, he would never be a free man again. I was there when they gave him the chair. I thought that I owed him that much. For him to die with as somebody who knew the truth present. Someone to validate his innocence as he entered the next life. He didn't agree when he saw me through the glass. I've never heard anyone swear like that. When I led them to the clearing, the circular chasm had vanished. All that remained was a patch of condensed, almost clay-like earth. One that none of the officers seemed to want to look at for too long. However, a bit of ground that gives people heebie-jeebies is hardly admissible evidence in court. Since there was no hole anymore when the police found Adam's truck, nobody believed my story. When I realized the cops, my parents, Adam's mom, and especially Ben's town councilman father wanted to believe that Simon Kincaid had killed the three boys, I started agreeing with, What have I done? I've had 30 years to try and rectify this. Nobody believed Simon Kincaid's story either. Until the day that he died, he was a guilty, monstrous, evil individual in the eyes of literally everybody but me. Nobody believed this weirdo forest brother had found me without my brother and his idiot friends, let alone that he would quote-unquote saved me from a hole that quote-unquote mysteriously couldn't be found, or at least that's how the skeptic law enforcement officials and jury sarcastically saw it when he refused to stop pleading his innocence. I could have corroborated his story, but instead I... Look, I was 12, okay? I was surrounded by furious adults who needed vindication, not inexplicable, not vanishing forest holes. Ben's dad screamed at me so much about Kincaid being a killer, about Kincaid doing some messed up stuff that had traumatized me, about being so traumatized that I would wipe it from my memory and swapped it for a fantasy that I believed it. For years, I convinced myself that justice had been served, that forest weirdo Simon Kincaid had killed my brother and his two idiot pals. I couldn't ignore the daily nightmares about the hole, or the scream that came from it forever though. I ended up having an okay well. I had a life. A crappy job in data science and a failed marriage that was too short to produce kids. A cat. Not much, but more than Simon Kincaid ever got. Through it all, I had the nightmares to remind me that my empire of mediocrity was built on a fatal lie. It was the mid-2010s when I finally broke and admitted the truth to myself. I decided not to tell mom and dad. I wanted to spare them the pain. It had been years since Jamie's casketless funeral. Why open old wounds, I figured. Either they would think that I had gone mad or they would believe me and want to head back to Wisconsin for answers. Both options involved nothing but emotional pain. I couldn't do that to them. Although now, I wish that I would have found the strength to. The guilt at knowing they died ignorant of Jamie's true fate is tearing me apart. Almost as much as what I did to Simon Kincaid with my silence. As I said, I'm not posting this to find absolution. I don't deserve forgiveness. I did a terrible thing and... I have to live with that fact and own it. I ran from my trauma for years, wrapped myself in the comfort of a reality I knew to be false and an innocent man had died for it. At least I don't have to carry this as a secret anymore. 
Mom and Dad, I might be gone, but someone else knows what's really happened that day. You, by the way, I'm talking about you. The person listening to this. Who knows, maybe now I've told you the nightmares will finally stop. I hope so. This was the first idea on my list and I'm really not looking forward to plan B. Plan A, posting this, hinges on the fact that my nightmares are because of the guilt. If they're not, well, crap. I'm really not looking forward to plan B. I haven't been back to Herbert's Woods since I led the police to Adam's 88 Comanche in the clearing where the hole had been. Somehow I know if I return alone this time, I'll find it again. Deep down in my bones, I know. I don't want to test the theory though. But if these nightmares don't stop, that's the next step. What else can I do? I need to make it right. Maybe that means finding the bodies. Man, I'm so sorry. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.